Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. As ever, thank you to all the school staff listening. The work you do has never been more important to the communities you serve. Today's guest is Sir David Carter, a man who needs little introduction from me, uh, but just in case. Uh, he has started his career as a music teacher, he's been a head teacher. Uh, CEO of a trust, regional schools commissioner, national schools commissioner, and is currently executive director of system leadership at Ambition Institute. David has such a wide range of experience and depth of knowledge that we could cover any number of things today, but we're going to kick off by talking a little bit about the partial closure of schools and then move into discuss accountability, policy making, and finally some of the, the work that he's doing at the moment on system leadership. So welcome, David. Thank you very much for that very warm welcome. <laughs> um, so this is a question that I have been asking quite a lot of people lately. Have you, have you given thought to what you would be doing right now if you were a school leader today? Uh, yes, I have. Um, I, I, I think uh, it's something I'm thinking a great deal of, and many of the conversations I'm having with people through my work as Ambition and through the other bits of uh, professional work that I do is really trying to understand and make sense of the challenge. And, and I think one of the really interesting and difficult things about this is we haven't really ever lived through something like this before. It's so new. Mm. Um, and, and I think there's, there's there are several things which I think if I were back in the role, I would be thinking about doing. Um, I think engagement feels a really important part at the moment. Um, I, I think there is a real sense that people are feeling isolated um, by design. We've been told to be isolated mm. um, in, in, in the current lockdown. But I think I would be trying to work extraordinarily hard at producing daily, very short video clips. Um, I'd be trying to pick up online calls with people that were, that were really important in terms of making sure that they were looking after people. Um, WhatsApp is a great tool for just in, instant chat, which I think is, is important. But I think that staying connected provides reassurance for people. And and this is not a period of time to be an invisible leader. This is a point where you knew, you do need to be visible. Uh, I would work really closely, I think, with my trustees and my governors as well. Uh, I, I think we've talked a great deal about how leaders are coming to the fore at the moment, and, and absolutely they are. They're doing an unbelievable job. But trustees and governors also have a massive role to play at the moment, both in terms of challenge and support for, for the leaders. And I think I'd also try to break down what I need to do into sort of weekly short-term tasks, because actually the to-do list on this is, is, is just huge. It's, it's, it's swamping. Uh, it's mm. overpowering. So thinking about the limits of what you can realistically do right now, I think I think is an important part of it. And and the fourth element would be for me that I, I would also want to make sure that I was taking a break uh, because the possibility is that if schools were to return in some format either before September or in September, it's going to be Christmas before school leaders are going to get a proper break. And that is going to be tough. Uh, and so looking after your mental and physical well-being right now, I think, feels really important. But I, a lot of what I've just said to you, um, I, I came across a document yesterday published by McKinsey called the COVID-19 Briefing Paper. And they've written it for organisations who are preparing for 
going back to normal practice. So it's not about schools, but I think it's got real reson resonance for schools. And they talk about five phases, which I thought was really fascinating. The first phase was uh, what they call the resolve phase, which is, I think, where we probably are now, which was the immediate crisis. And for school leaders, how do we feed our vulnerable families? Um, how do we set up some kind of home learning? It's, the, it's, it's actually solving those problems that came up in the first 72 hours. The second phase is about resilience, which I think is where we're getting to now. So we've been through the crisis, we've worked out a plan. Now, how do we make that plan really produce uh, some quality outcomes, even if, even though it's in a in an in a unusual time? Um, the third phase is the return, which is what it says, I think, which is actually how do we begin to get to some normality? And, and for schools, that'll be phased, I'm sure. The fourth phase that they talk about is reimagination. Uh, and this really interests me because I think lots of people are talking about we will never go back to how we were before, and that's probably true up to a point. But, uh, but McKinsey talks about the next normal rather than the new normal that some people say. And I think the reimagination of a school system post the pandemic is very interesting. And then the final phase is the reform phase, where some of the things that we're now doing uh, as a response to the challenge might become part of legislation or future policy thinking. And I think if schools were able to look at that document, just look at the five phases, it gives you a structure for what the next 18 months might start to look like. That's, that's really interesting. And um, we can definitely link, link to that document in the notes from this podcast. And I think, you know, where you started with that answer, really thinking about the, the personal connections and, the, and the, the face-to-face there must be very difficult for, for school leaders so used to being at the centre of a of a community very physically to all of a sudden have a lot fewer staff and pupils on on site and feel just that bit further away uh, from people yeah um and coming on to think about that um uh world world beyond this um you've you've made some some comments already about accountability pausing Ofsted until 2021 can we can we explore that in a bit more detail what do you what do you think could be could be made better for example about the accountability system uh, in in a in a post covid-19 world yeah no, that's a really good question and, I, and, I, and I, I, I have thought about what what the remit of an inspection service should be i mean i, I want to be really clear that I'm not in the camp that says we shouldn't have Ofsted. I, I, I firmly believe that our public education system funded by the taxpayer has to be regulated. But I think the world is changing uh, and the gears are shifting so quickly that if schools are having to reimagine their role, then I think Ofsted and inspection has got to do the same thing. Uh, and of course, that will be very interesting to see how, how that flows through. And, I, and I've got no doubt that Austin are absolutely doing that, that piece of work and thinking about when would they when would they restart inspecting and, and what would the focus of it be when, when, when that time comes round. But you know, I, I, if you think about the role that schools have played and are playing at the moment, um, you know, they, they, they don't get the same headline publicity as the NHS does, quite rightly so, because they really are on the front line in the National Health Service. But Let's not forget that because schools are still open, even if they're not serving the whole community, they are enabling key workers who are on the front line to go to work. So I think the role that teachers are playing in the current challenge on behalf of the, the government, in effect, is, is really profound. And, I, and I, 
I'll keep this really simple and maybe it's a little bit trite, but, but, but let me just imagine this. You know, if my school was being inspected in November or December and an inspector on the basis of a day and a half with me decided that my leadership was inadequate or required improvement after what I've just been through, I think that's going to get quite a reaction from mm. people. So I think we, we can't just assume that we're going to go back to where we were before. And so I've had to think about what I think that would look like. And I think there are six themes that would probably fit into an inspection model in a, in a, in a post-pandemic era. Um, at the top of my list would be safeguarding. Um, I, I, I think safeguarding will continue to be an issue uh, in, in our sector. The, the really difficult bit at the moment is we don't know how vulnerable children are because we're yeah. not seeing them every day in the, in the traditional communication routes when families describe the difficulties they're having through seeing their class teacher or, or a school leader every day are, are not happening right now. So mm. number one for me would be safeguarding. The second would then feed off that, which would be how well does a school care and support vulnerable families, but including their educational provision. And there's a really interesting challenge about that, because if you think about a disadvantaged child whose learning is already behind the curve and, 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 and they are behind their more advantaged peers, we can't necessarily assume that we can start their learning again from where they were in March 2020, because there will have been a learning loss. Mm. So the gap will have opened up. Um, and I think uh, a really intelligent accountability system should both challenge and support the school sector to be really good at that and, and develop that in a really interesting way. My third one would be the engagement with families, um, speaking partly to the conversation we, we, we had before this podcast yeah. around the expectation of parents that the traditional once-a-year parents' evening or um, a one-side of A4 annual report is not going to be good enough anymore. They're going to want to be partners in their child's learning in a way that we've never seen before. And I think we should be looking at that. I think the fourth area that uh, I would be wanting to think about is the role of trustees and governors. Um, at this particular moment in time and going forward, their role is going to be even more critical, I think. And so thinking about the kind of questions that trustees are asking of their leaders, um, the kind of relationship between how we manage this new landscape and the existing strategy is going to be really important. My fifth one is around standards and educational performance because fundamentally that's what the taxpayer is expecting a publicly funded education service to deliver. So it would be really it would be ridiculous to say that wasn't part of it. But I think it will be not the only priority that will be part of that. But certainly looking at standards and educational performance will be interesting. But here's the challenge with that. We will have children coming back into year six, year 12, and oh, sorry, current year six, uh, current year 11, current year 12, who are going to go into exams in 2021, who actually will have missed a significant amount of learning. Mm. And therefore, that has implications for the assessment system. So it is a really interesting question about what educational performance we're judging and, 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 and how do we make sense of that in that landscape. And then I think my final one is about capacity, really, and, and it's about the ability of a trust or a school to deliver the vision that it's articulated to its community. Um, and this, for me, is about intention. It's about the belief that the school has about the type of education that the children need. And an inspection framework should be really adept at testing it and saying, well, okay, you've come up with that, that notion of the kind of provision you want to develop and you want to implement for children, but how good are you at it and how much capacity have you got to deliver it? And I think that also helps a little bit with the future-proofing 
of when further challenges and crises occur down the line. So th those six things would probably be the, the architecture of, of some further thinking that I would, uh, I, I would bring to this if, I, if it was my responsibility. And, I mean, what, what I think is, is, is positive is lots of different people seem to be up for thinking differently as a result of these you know, completely uh, uh, unprecedented uh, times that we're that we're in. So, you know, if 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 alignment and 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 lots of people thinking differently can be have the right conversations, it it does feel like there's potential to make quite a lot of of really meaningful change in the sector. That's definitely the sense I get from my conversations. I'm I'm sure you've had similar ones too. Yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, and and, I, and I'm not suggesting for one minute that. Ofsted as an organisation isn't having those conversations or doesn't doesn't think the same way. I, it just feels to me that we're in a, we're, we have a real opportunity here uh, to think about the way that we want the accountability landscape to operate, so that it is genuinely a force for good and genuinely a force for improvement. And some of the the, the burdens of the downward pressure on the school sector, which leads to implications about people wanting to be teachers, wanting to be leaders. Um, I, I think this is an opportunity for a really interesting debate around that. We, through no fault of our own, we have time to do that now, mm. and it would be a missed opportunity if we don't have that conversation. Yeah, and it's it is it is interesting when you when you remove so much of the sort of business as as usual almost, uh, you know, arguments and and um, and things that have been rumbling on for such a long time. You, I almost get to a point now where I think, gosh, what was. What was all of that about? Because everyone has such a, a much bigger and, and more important thing to think about right now, which is the, the safety of children, the safety of, of people working in schools, their, their mental well-being, their physical. You know, it, it, it is. Um, yeah, it's a very hopefully a very positive time for, for collaboration and conversations and 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 change. Yeah. Now, just just stepping away um, from from the current situation and thinking a little bit about your your previous experience. Obviously, you've been both a, a senior civil servant and a school and, and system leader yourself. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit about what you what you think each of those roles needs to understand ab about the other. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. And I, and I feel incredibly fortunate that I was able to do both. Mm. Um, there are there are very few people uh, who've had the opportunity to be a, a, to operate in the senior civil service and run a multi academy trust in the way that I did. So I, I absolutely relished that experience and really enjoyed it. Um, but I think you have to understand the parameters of both briefs. So I mean I think there is there is quite a lot of work that already takes place about how we bring the civil service and the school sector closer together. So. You know, I used to regularly chair roundtable meetings. Uh, I'd invite people in to talk with, uh, with ministers who I'd seen doing some really interesting work, certainly making sure that advisors were aware of some of the really effective things that we were seeing in the sector, um, not because that was going to overtake the policy, but, but in, in the hope that it would inform it. Um, but I think the school sector doesn't always readily understand about the political context in which policy takes place and that the, any Secretary of State has a responsibility to implement the strategy and vision of their party and, and what number 10 um, would, would have a view about. And I think that backstory sometimes isn't always clear to schools. So I think, I think you have to understand that the policy doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists very much to deliver the objectives of the government mm. of the day. Uh, and of course, people working in schools will, will have their own views about that. 
um, I was very clear when I was a senior civil servant that my job was to work for the elected ministers. Um, uh, Lord Nash and Lord Agnew were appointed into as peers. They weren't elected as MPs, but certainly other ministers in my time there were, had come through that route. Um, and they were their task was to, to create the policy and deliver the aims and objectives that they'd been asked to to, to work with. And, and in that capacity, there's not really much space for vision. So um, in all of the time, the, the four years I was involved as an RSC and NSC, my own personal vision about what should happen with the sector wasn't really on the table. My job was to look at the way in which the policy was being evolved and try to shape it, but also try to get an understanding of what something really effective would be like. So that's why I spent such a lot of my time as NSE looking at the architecture of multi-academy trusts, thinking about school improvement strategies, talking about the management of talent, so that actually school improvement became a really integral part of that thinking, not just the process by which schools became academies. But of course, teachers work differently um, to that. They, are, they, are, they do have some scope for vision and some interpretation of that. Um, and, and policy thinking at a national level involving teachers is risky for the politicians mm -hmm. because it only really works if teachers can suspend their own personal view of the world and think about how they can help minister deliver their priorities. So I think, I think there's some real rich elements of how you can bring civil service and the school sector closer together. But I think people are going to walk into it with their eyes wide open and to understand the, 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 the terms of engagement, if you like, about how that, that dialogue will take place. Yeah, and it and, and as you say, a lot a lot can be done by by really showing those examples of practice and 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 connecting those officials more more closely to the to the sector itself, and not assuming that they somehow know what it what it's like to do these jobs. No, exactly, and and you know, I remember um, as part of my induction uh, into the RSC role, uh, the phrase the you know the brightest and the talented people that we could get the most talented people who get into civil service and you have people who come through the fast track route and the fast stream route who were incredibly bright very able people but had very limited if no experience of the school sector and I, and I can understand why schools find that frustrating that people who are shaping policy that's going to have a really big implication upon the way that they carry out their professional role is being conceived of by people who've never done that role but it doesn't mean to say you can't create great policy and on that point, what do you think? How you know, if school leaders want to be more involved in 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 in, in policy making, you know, how how might how might that work? Do you think school leaders should be more involved in policy making? Yeah, I definitely think that school leaders should be involved in policy making. I I, I think uh, I think a, a modern education system such as the one we have in this country almost demands that uh, because that's where the knowledge and that's where the information about how policy is landing in classrooms and the difference it's making is really important so yes of course they should be involved in it um, but I, I think there's also uh, another side to that which is the, the, the confidence that the DfE and ministers will have in wanting to embrace that feedback and that, and that thinking around policy would need to be predicated upon how successful schools are being. So I don't think you're going to see realistically policymakers engage with schools who want to change the way that the world works simply because they haven't performed very well against those indicators. So, you know, it, it's one of the reasons why the schools that are often seen as the people who are engaged most readily by the DfE are, are, are done so, because often they've performed really well. 
um, and not just on the metrics of uh, performance data or inspection outcomes, but they've been able to take the policy that was conceived of nationally and take it even further. So the role that I think schools can play there is very much about how do you extend policy um, rather than necessarily create new policy. Um, but, but I mean, if you think about the track record of the DfE, uh, I was I was one of the one of the fortunate ones that when the new original schools commission model came in in 2014, um, and there were eight of us, uh, and Frank Green was then national schools commissioner. So out of the nine people that sat around the table on the 1st of September, eight of us um, eight of us had been school leaders. We'd come straight from the sector, either as heads, executive heads, or, or in my case, as a CEO. Um, and at that time, there was no doubt that both Lord Nash and later Lord Agnew were really keen to listen to our experience. Um, and, and, and what they did was to push us really hard to take the policy thinking that they were being asked to consider and get us to filter that thinking through the lens of school leadership. Um, and I thought that really worked well. Um, and that, that, that's a shame, I think, in a way, that that experience around the table has shifted a bit because of the current nine people, the eight RSEs and Dominic as NSE, only three of them have recent school leadership experience. Um, and it's not to say that, that the people who are on the table aren't anything but absolute quality, because I know them all personally, and they're really brilliant civil servants and very effective people um, and very effective leaders. But you do miss something when the voice of the sector is not sitting on the ear of a minister who's about to make a really important decision about something which will affect the system. Indeed, indeed. And it is difficult, isn't it? Because they're, 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 two, they're two quite different things, you know, people who who spend all, all of their time and focus on their particular community around their school or their their trust and kind of know that know that really well maybe have moved in, a, in taught in a few places in, in, in different parts of the country but then you've got sort of policy makers who have to try and come up with something that that fits all schools um, and you know is never going to be quite that that perfect match um, it, it must have been some very interesting conversations around that table. Yeah, they were. They were. I mean, some of the best I've ever had in my career, if I'm if I'm honest. You know, because this was really cause and effect in action. So, you know, if you've got a minister and a government that absolutely is passionate about closing the gap between disadvantaged children and everybody else, simply focusing that through the lens of curriculum design is not is not going to be the only way to do that. Because what's happening up and down the country is many of those children have to be supported. Um, in such a way to first of all get them into school and when, and when they're in school to be ready to learn mm. uh, and so the, the complexity of how you raise standards in vulnerable communities is, is, a, is a really deep challenge for the sector uh, it's one of the reasons why I, I'm so passionate about the role of academy trusts because I think they've got the best chance of anybody to do that I still think we haven't done enough I think the gap hasn't closed anywhere near as quickly as we needed it to and it's going to be even harder when mm. we get back to um, McKinsey's next normal but but we've got to continue to pursue that because any 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 education system no matter where it is in the world can only really be judged on how well it does with its most disadvantaged communities um, at the moment I think we've done some remarkable work and some great thinking but it hasn't yet produced the outcomes consistently everywhere that we needed to and, and your point about policymakers having to come up with policy that works in Carlisle in Cumbria in Cornwall is really true I mean when I was a CEO in Bristol I knew the Bristol scene incredibly well and I knew the challenge of working in that city but some of the things we did in Bristol wouldn't have been transferable to other cities and towns 
So that's the challenge that policies and policy writing is, is, is facing. It's, it's, it's facing the challenge of scale and geography in a way that even a, a multi-academy trust, quite a wide geographical footprint, doesn't have to address. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen, particularly in the, in the last few weeks, that having that additional capacity and, and leadership in a, in a trust can, can really make some you know, fast decision-making and great work going going on um, and, and and being able to help other schools that, that might not even be in, be in their in their trusts why why do you think there is still this antitrust sentiment um, in some parts of the sector and and what what can be done about that I think there are a number of reasons for that um, I, I, I have a, I have a feeling that the antitrust sentiment might shift slightly past post this era mm. um, you alluded to alluded to it a moment ago where lots of multi-academy trusts have started to support and work very closely with schools in the maintained sector who have no desire to be a member of their group but are benefiting from the support and, and when you work closely with people you begin to understand them better as people mm. and you begin to understand a, a different agenda that they're trying to put forward rather than the one which is that breeds some of that anti-academy um, feeling. I, I think there are four things that I think are root causes of it, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll share those with you, but I also think each of those root causes has a solution in it as well. So there is undoubtedly, there is an ideological challenge. So there will be a school of thought um, that will always be there that says we should never re replace local authorities in this way, um, and the lack of local democratic oversight is a problem. Um, and the model as it's constructed says that actually there are things that you can do to make that better, but you're never going to completely address that issue. So for people who, who are really anti the academy movement as a policy, as opposed to the individuals within it, then I think that's something that was going to be with us for some time. But of course, the, the solution there is that the academy trusts, if they can perform better than anybody else has ever done in those communities, that's a very strong counter argument. Mm. I think we've got a part of an issue with some of the behaviours in the system. Um, and there were some of those I, I, I saw very close up, where some of the high-profile failures that we saw were uh, a lack of oversight, a, a weak governance, and poor leadership. But, but here's the rub. You know, lots of that practice and lots of those behaviours were and still are in the maintained sector as well. It's not something that sits purely and simply in the academy movement. But nevertheless, for every, for every academy trust that fails, it puts a shroud and a doubt in the minds of every other academy trust in the system and begs the question, both in the media and with parents and communities, about whether their trust is as secure as they were led to believe. I think there's something about the business orientation of trust as well. Um, and Leora Crudus and CST have done some really interesting thinking around this. But you've also got to bear in mind that this is a corporate structure through a charity. These trusts are registered mm -hmm. charities. And so therefore they are set up differently. But I think we can help ourselves a little bit. Some of the language, some of the terminology that we use um, is, is borrowed or, or loaned from the business community. That in itself isn't a problem. But for people who don't understand it and don't understand how this model is constructed, I think it becomes something which they feel very worried and very concerned about. 
And then the fourth one, I think, is that some of the academy trusts and some of the academy leaders have a very close relationship with the department uh, and with ministers, and that breeds suspicion. But you also have to remember that, by definition, the academies have a closer relationship with the DfE because they've signed a funding agreement at some point with the Secretary of State. Mm. So they're held to account by the RSEs on behalf of the Secretary of State in a way that the maintained sector isn't. So it's going to be a different relationship. Um, and people will look at that through the lens of favouritism, whereas I prefer to look at it through the, uh, the accountability lens. But I, I think those four areas are, are challenges which still remain. I think the trusts have a real opportunity to communicate what their trusts are, how they're, con- how they're conceived, how they're set up, what they're meant to do, because there's still the vast majority of people who lead academy trusts have come through the same as I did. Yeah. A teacher, a middle leader, a deputy head, a head. You know, I don't have a business background. And many of the people who started 2007 and later are great school leaders with all the right moral purpose. And that's the tragedy that some of those people get attacked for something which is not their fault. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what what ingredients do you do you think make a good sort of system leader? As you said, you know, a lot of people have have come up through the the teaching route. What would you what would you say makes for a good system leader? This is another really good question, but it's probably it's almost a podcast in its own right. <laughs> Maybe we'll come back and do this one day. Yeah. I think there are five or six things, and I'm borrowing this really from the work I'm doing with Ambition around uh, system leadership and, uh, and and trust educator leadership programs. Um, so I think they're not in they're not in hierarchical order, but these are the six things that I think when I'm thinking of either coaching or developing somebody into a role who's going to lead multiple schools, it's these six things. Number one is the ability to lead through others. Um, easy to say, very hard to do because the people who found themselves in the position where they've been asked to lead more schools have done so because they've been very, very good leaders of single schools. And the, and the challenge, of course, is that you are no longer the day-to-day visible leader making all of the decisions that you would have done as a head of a single school. So you have to be able to lead through others. You have to be able to model um, great leadership um, so that people can get an, an, an indication of your leadership expectations of them. But you have to do that, that that wonderful phrase of give leaders the authority to deliver their priorities, but you have to keep the responsibility. And, that, and that's a difficult path, I think, to walk. So a chief executive in a multi-academy trust is also usually the accounting officer. And you have to be really careful about how much authority I think you delegate when you're accountable to the organization. But the best trust leaders do that. I think the fourth point is that system leaders, uh, the phrase that I use is be the guardian of the ambition. So the reason that your organization exists while your multi-academy trust was set up, there'll be a flame there which needs to needs to stay alight. And the role of a system leader is to continually be testing the performance of the schools and the activities against that ambition. And then my final point would be the system leaders have to be great communicators. You're communicating at a scale that is con- considerably different to when you were working in one school. Um, and whereas in one school you have frequent conversations on a daily basis with people, when you're leading a trust of 20 schools, it may be one conversation every half term. And as a result, you have to make those conversations count. So I talk to system leaders about never waste a conversation. There's no such thing as a quiet conversation in the corridor because that person goes home and tells their husband or wife or partner, I spoke to the CEO today. Whereas you've had 150 conversations like that, you have to make those conversations count. Make people feel good. Make people understand about the vision that you're that you're trying to deliver on and what their role in is it. 
great stuff. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about the, the work that you're doing uh, with Ambition Institute. Yeah, sure. So, so I've been with Ambition Institute now since November after I left the DFE. So it'll be two years this coming November. Um, and I do two bits of work effectively. One is to, uh, to lead the Trust Educators Programme, uh, which is a programme for people who are the accounting officers in multi-academy trusts or the deputy CEOs or they are directors of school improvement, but they have a significant role. Um, and the other is the trust diagnostic, which, uh, mm. which is something I was, I was thinking about and developing when I was in the DFE and, and Ambition have enabled me to put that into place. Because um, I think there were two things that I was really conscious of as NSC that we weren't moving quickly enough on. One was how do we really understand what effective practice looks like in the trust sector? Um, and how do we support trust self-evaluation uh, and, and use other multi-academy trusts to be part of that? And so the mat-to-mat interrelationship was important. So, so I devised a trust diagnostic, which uh, goes through some very straightforward phases. I, I wrote a survey of around about 100 questions, which uh, trusts will distribute to people in their organization. Um, a diagonal slice of people will respond to that, usually ideally around about 200 responses. Um, that will enable us to take a look at both the global feedback about those particular questions, but also, for example, how does support staff feel about a particular issue compared to how does the board feel about it? So to have that that uh, that range of feedback has been really helpful. We've followed that then by agreeing with the trust, what I call three lines of inquiry, and then we do a discovery day where we go to the trust using myself, plus a CEO of another trust, plus a chair of another trust. Um, and we'll look at those three lines of inquiry which have emerged from the survey and then I will write them a, a, a report, a review with some recommendations and then support them to deliver those recommendations after it's, it's been done. And, and I think it's been really effective. I've, I've certainly enjoyed doing it and the feedback has been very positive and I'm at the point at the moment of trying to pull together the learning from the first year of that to share that more widely with the system. And what I'm doing right now, in fact, I was doing it this morning with my team at Ambition, was to think about how do we shift the model to an online digital version so that we continue to do this, particularly in the summer term. And who knows, maybe into next academic year as well, where face-to-face visits are going to be very difficult. Mm. Um, but also it means that we can continue with this work because the feedback from the first dozen or so reviews has been incredibly positive. And I know it's something which the trust, the sorry, which I want the, the system wants to be a part of and finds valuable. So if I can turn it into an online version as well, then we, we can move fast with that too. Great stuff. And any, anything else you're, you're working on now that you'd like to to share with the audience? So um, the, the, the two big bits that I'm thinking about uh, more than anything else at the moment is, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, uh, I, I teach the MBA with the University of Buckingham on educational management, and we are recruiting to cohort two of that right now. So um, my, my, my Twitter feed has a number of links to the application form. So people who are interested in doing an MBA with a level seven apprenticeship alongside it uh, are, are very welcome to talk to me. Um, and I'm in the closing stages of completing a book called Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail But Most Don't. So uh, I'm looking forward to that being published over the summer and hopefully people will find that really useful. Great stuff. And any any final words for our listeners today? Yeah, I, I, so I thought you might ask me that because it came up in a conversation I had uh, last week. Um, and and I, I don't want to be pompous about this and tell leaders what to do because they're living it at the moment I'm not 
but I, I think there are a couple of words of advice I'd give, which is, first of all, people shouldn't worry if this current current period feels very unsettled and insecure, because it is. Um, if, if the children in schools are back by September, it will be the longest period of break from schooling since the Second World War. Uh, we've never had anything longer than a six or seven week summer break. And so this is, a, this is unusual territory. I think my second bit of advice would be, if you had a plan that was working to give kids a great education on March the 1st, 2020, the chances are your plan will still be a great plan and resist the temptation to throw everything out of the window in this new world, but recognize that you're probably, as McKinsey alluded to in their five phases that we spoke about earlier in the conversation, they will probably have to change. But if you were doing well before, you're gonna do well afterwards and be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I think this one probably brings us full circle because you asked me at the very beginning of the conversation about what I would do if I was leading in schools. And, and, and this one I think is probably in, in, in response to that type of question. I would want to try, if I could, to have as many one-to-one -one conversations with my key staff that I was responsible for before they came back. Because um, I'd want to know how they're feeling. I'd want to know what they've been dealing with, what their anxieties are. And we talk a lot about talent pools and talent mapping. But I think more than ever, we need to have a mental map about how our organization feels and what the health is of, of the organization mm -hmm. is before it comes back. Because we're going to be dealing with very sadly, we're going to be dealing with bereavement, we're going to be dealing with people who've been ill, we're going to be dealing with, uh, with loss in families. Um, and I remember as a head, some of the most difficult moments I've had was death of children in, in, in a school that I was a leader of. Mm. Um, and there wasn't a lot of a lot out there about how you cope with that. And, and yet that's going to be a reality for people. And so I think it's okay for leaders to put their hand up and say, I need help. I don't feel great. I'm finding this tough. Um, I think asking for help in this current climate and the future will be a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. And I really hope people do that. Well, thank you. Thank you for those words. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. And we are enormously grateful to Sir David Carter for talking to us today. Members of the Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.